And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West, the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is April 19th, the 109th day of the year. 256 days remain to the year's over with. And... Since you all asked for me to announce what holidays and observances there are on each day, today is National Garlic Day. It is Refresh Your Goals Day. Pick out something new you want to do. Congenital Diaphragmatic Hernia Action Day. That's a mouthful. Dutch American Friendship Day. Humorous Day. Look at some of the stuff Congress has done. You'll get a real laugh out of that. John Parker Day, Landing of the 33 Patriots Day, National Amaretto Day, National Banana Day, let's see what appeals to you about that, uh, National Cat Lady Day, National Dog Parent Appreciation Day, National Hanging Out Day, on this particular day you're supposed to ditch your dryers and hang your clothes outside, National Hayden Day, Uh, National North Dakota Day, National Oklahoma City Bombing Commemoration Day, National Poker Day, Poetry in the Creative Mind Day, Rice Ball Day, Sylvester the Cat's Birthday. If you don't know who Sylvester the Cat is, then you had a very, very um, humorless uh, childhood. Youth Homelessness Matters Day. Alrighty. Now. In AD 65, the freedman uh, Alicius uh, betrays Piso's plot to kill the Emperor Nero and all the conspirators are arrested. 531, the Battle of Callinicum. The Byzantine army under Belisarius is defeated by the Persians at Raqqa, northern Syria. 797, Empress Irene organizes a conspiracy against her son, the Byzantine Emperor Constantine VI. He is eventually deposed and blinded. Shortly after that, he dies of his wounds, and Irene proclaims herself Basilius. Uh, 1506, the Lisbon Massacre begins, in which the accused Jews are slaughtered by Portuguese Catholics. What is this issue with religious warring? It just makes no sense. 1529, beginning of the Protestant Reformation. After the Second Diet of Speyer bans Lutheranism, a group of rulers and independent cities protest the reinstatement of the Edict of Worms. 1539, the Treaty of Frankfurt between Protestants and the Holy Roman Emperor is signed. By 1539, uh, he may have been called the Holy Roman Emperor, but he wasn't holy, he wasn't Roman, and... uh, he probably was an emperor, but of what? 1609, and it's kind of like the king of Jerusalem. That is still a, a title in um, European heraldry, but it amounts to nothing more than a, a name. 1608 in Ireland, old Dorothy's rebellion is launched by the burning of Derry. 1617, a town of Usakapuki. 
uh, is founded by King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden. 1677, the French army captures the town of Cambrai, held by Spanish troops. 1713, with no living male heirs, Charles VI, Holy Roman Emperor, issues the pragmatic sanction of 1713 to ensure that Habsburg lands and the Austrian throne would be inheritable by a female. His daughter and successor, Maria Theresa, wasn't born until 1717. 1770, Captain James Cook, still holding the rank of lieutenant, sights the eastern coast of what's now Australia. 1770, Marie Antoinette marries Louis XVI of France in a proxy wedding. 1775, American Revolutionary War. The war begins with an American victory in Concord during the battles of Lexington and Concord. 1782, John Adams secures a Dutch recognition of the U.S. as independent government. The house which he'd purchased in The Hague becomes the first American embassy. 1809, the Austrian Corps is defeated by the forces of Dutchy Warsaw in the Battle of Resin, part of the struggles of the Fifth Coalition. Same day, the Austrian main army is defeated by a first French Empire Corps led by Louis Nicolas de Valde at the Battle of uh, Tugenhausen in Bavaria, part of a four-day campaign that ended in a French victory. At one point in time, the French army was good. 1810, Venezuela achieves home rule. Vincente, empowered governor, the captaincy general is removed by the people of Caracas, and the junta is installed. 1818, French physicist Augustin de Fresnel signs his preliminary note on the theory of diffraction, deposited on the following day. The document ends with what we now call the Fresnel Integrals. 1839, the Treaty of London establishes Belgium as a kingdom and guarantees its neutrality. 1861, American Civil War. The Baltimore Riot of 1861. A pro-succession mob in Baltimore attacks U.S. Army troops marching through the city. 1903, the Kishinev pogrom in uh, Kishinev in Bessarabia begins forcing tens of thousands of Jews to later seek refuge in Palestine in the Western world, which was a great loss to the East. 1927, Mae West is sentenced to 10 days in jail for obscenity for her play called Sex. 1942, World War II, in German-occupied Poland, the Majdan Tatarski ghetto was established, situated between the Lublin ghetto and the... Um, as the next subcamp. 1943, World War II, a German occupied Poland. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising begins after the German troops enter the Warsaw Ghetto to round up the remaining Jews. 1943, on this date, Albert Hoffman deliberately doses himself with LSD for the first time, three days after having discovered its effects on April 16th. 1956, actress Grace Kelly marries Prince Rainier of Monaco. 1960, students in South Korea hold a nationwide pro-democracy protest against President uh, Sigmund Rhee, uh, eventually forcing him to resign. 1971, Sierra Leone becomes a republic and Slakia Stevens the president. 1971, launch of Salyut 1, the first space station. Also on this date in 71, Charles Manson is sentenced to death, later commuted to imprisonment for... Uh, life for the conspiracy in the Tate LaBianca murders. 
1973, the Portuguese Socialist Party is founded in the German town of Bad Munsterifel. 1975, India's first satellite, Arihabna, launched in orbit from Kapustin Yar in Russia. 1975, South Vietnamese forces would draw from the town of Zan Lok in the last major battle of the Vietnam War. That is a war lost almost entirely by politicians trying to direct what the military should do. 1984, Advanced Australia Affairs proclaimed in Australia's na as pro Australia's national anthem and green and gold as the national colors. 1985, 200 ATF and FBI agents leased siege to the compound of the white supremacist revivalist group, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord in Arkansas. It surrenders two days later. 1987, The Simpsons first appears as a series of shorts on the Tracy Ullman show, first starting with Good Night. 1989, a gun turret explodes in the USS Iowa kills 47 sailors. 1993, the 51-day FBI siege at a Branch Davidian building in Waco, Texas, ends in a, as a fire breaks out. 76 Davidians, including 18 children under the age of 10, die in the fire. They still haven't determined exactly who set the fire. 1995, Oklahoma City bombing. The Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City is bombed, killing 168 people, including 19 children under the age of 6. Inexplicably, a lot of federally associated individuals did not come to work that day. 1999, the German Bundestag returns to Berlin. 2000, Air Philippines Flight 541 crashes in Samal, Davio del Norte, killing all 131 people on board. 2005, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger is elected to the papacy and becomes Pope Benedict XVI. 2011, Fidel Castro resigns as the first secretary of the Communist Party of Cuba after holding the title since July of 61. 2013, Boston Marathon bombing suspect Tamerlan Sarnave is killed in a shootout with police. His brother Zahokar is later captured hiding in a boat inside a backyard in a suburb of Watertown. 2020, nobody knows why they did it. 2020, a killing spree in Nova Scotia, Canada leaves 22 dead and the perpetrator dead, making it the deadliest rampage in the country's history. And in 2021, the Ingenuity helicopter becomes the first aircraft to achieve flight on another planet. Okay. You know, we've talked about a lot of different topics on this show going on for almost uh, well over 30 years in one form or another and as I've mentioned numerous times I've written quite a number of books most of which you can find on Amazon and one of the books is called Unfinished Business and it's about unsolved murders in my humble opinion I don't care how good a job you do investigating if you can't uh, catch the killer, it's unfinished business. Now, the um, one of the best known um, killings that people still argue about whether or not it was a serial killer was known as the Atlanta Ripper. 
Now, there have been a lot of murders in the city of Atlanta. But the story of the Atlanta Ripper is unusual in the length of time. The killer prowled the streets of this city without being caught. And interestingly, this case didn't get much in the way of publicity outside the city as the victims of the individual known as the Atlanta Ripper were members of the black community. Then, as now in Georgia, issues in the black community tend to stay in the black community. Now, the killings actually appeared to have a gun in the year 1909. But there's no clear evidence that attributed every one of these killings to the same individual. Actually, the police never really pursued the idea of the Atlanta Ripper, believing that there was no such thing. But the circumstances of each killing seem to show a relationship to each other, making it likely it was actually one person doing the killings. Now, the first killing that was probably committed by the Atlanta Ripper took place in the year 1909, April of that year. The body of Della Reed was discovered in a trash pile. September of that year, a female victim who's never been identified was pulled out of Peachtree Creek. She'd been stabbed and her throat was cut. Now, the series of murders that most people feel were actually committed by the Ripper continued through the year 1910. In addition to the two I just mentioned, there were seven others. And, of course, researchers have argued that these seven murders may not have been committed by the Ripper since all but one was shot. And they could have simply been the, the victim of domestic violence or other circumstances that led to their killings. And certainly it's not beyond the realm of possibility that these women were in fact Ripper victims, but he simply changed the way he killed them. Now, many who've written about this time period have pointed to the clear institutionalized racism that existed in Atlanta. And um, you know, one thing you've got to understand about the state of Georgia for many, many years, for decades, it was the personal thief, if you will, of a group of individuals who saw themselves as above the law. One of the main um, powers in that group was a man named uh, John H. Land. He was a judge in Columbus, Georgia. And if there was ever a racist, ever a racist uh, segregationist, and he made no bones about admitting that's exactly what he was. Um, now, it was only three years before the first murder when there was massive race riots in Atlanta, and 25 African Americans were killed by white mobs following a series of accusations. No proof, mind you, just accusations they were raping white women. Now, many of these accusations were later proven to be false, but that didn't bring those killed during the riots back to life. It's also true during this time period, in spite of the claims of tolerance and progress in Atlanta that were made by the mayor of Atlanta and the governor of Georgia, the, the Jim Crow laws were still on the books and enforced. Black voters were still faced with a poll tax that literally disenfranchised them from uh, voting, and white investigators generally paid a little attention to crimes committed in the black community. It wasn't until 1910 it began to become clear to even the most myopic city leader that the evidence supported the idea that there was a single individual who was committing these murders. Now, a detailed study of the evidence 
when prejudice is put aside, that is, that these murders all showed the hallmarks of a woman-hating psychopath and the victim of, in the vein of Jack the Ripper who terrorized London in the 1880s. On the murderer who seemed to gain the full attention, the Atlanta police took place October 3rd, 1910. And that morning, the body of a 23-year-old cook by the name of Maggie Brooks was discovered. Her head had been bashed in with a rock or some other similar weapon. As time went on, it became clear to police this bashing in of the skull was a trademark of the murders that happened later. The trademark of the individual came to be known as the Atlanta Ripper. Of course, at the time, police still didn't understand this was the work of a serial killer. If you look at the cases individually, not as a whole, patterns are hard to spot. Same is true today. Frankly, when the murder rate in the black community in the early 1900s, the Ripper could have started killing before 1909. But we'll never know this fact. It can't be confirmed due to the desire of authorities not to open old wounds or further embarrass themselves for their failures to miss the signs of a serial killer. And let us not forget the tendency of the, the Georgia authorities to falsify documents when it's in their benefit. However, at the time, since there's no more unexplained murders of black women for the balance of the year, it was business as usual. Then January 22, 1911, 35-year-old Rosa Trice was found with her skull caved in and her throat slashed. Evidence showed her body had been dragged to where it was found, only a hundred yards from her own doorstep. And in a typical myopic knee-jerk reaction, police immediately arrested her husband, John Trice, for the murder. Case closed. Let's go get a beer. Well, case was closed until they had to release him for lack of evidence. Now, in hindsight, Trice's murder became the template against which other Ripper murders were compared. The Ripper's modus operandi was to approach a woman on the street, bash her in the head, and drag her body to a more secluded spot where he could take his time with her. Generally, this meant that the victim was stabbed and mutilated before her throat was finally slashed. Now, the peculiar action of the Ripper was to cut the woman's shoes off their feet and take them with him. Even if they were easily removable, he still cut them off. Well, in early February, Linda McNeil, I'm sorry, Lucinda McNeil was murdered with a straight razor. Immediately, there were those who believed the Ripper struck again. Of course, in typical police fashion of the day, they immediately arrested the husband based on some witness statements Lucinda had been killed by her husband in a drunken rage. Charles McNeil was tried and convicted of her murder, getting a life sentence in prison. And like finding a needle in a haystack, the police were dealing with too many crimes to be able to get the big picture, not that the murdered black woman was given much attention. Now, was Charles McNeil guilty? Well, keep in mind, we're supposed to be judged by a jury of our peers which is all well and good in theory. But when preconceived notions rule the day, wife is murdered, got to be the husband. 
That is the main evidence against him. And what couple have lived together for any length of time and not had disagreements, and some of them very public? You know, quite frankly, I once heard a saying that is very true today. You could try the Bishop of Boston for bastardy, but can you get a conviction? Well, uh, prosecutors want to be judges, and judges want to be governors, and you do that by getting convictions. Even if you have to stack the deck, falsify the evidence, you do what you got to do, because you're doing it for good cause, of course. You're going to protect the public. Now, the next Ripper murder, an actual Ripper murder, took place February 18, 1911. This time, the scene of the crime was just past the Atlanta city limits, which meant the Atlanta police weren't the primary investigative agency. And it also meant they basically ignored the case. Be that as it may, the murdered woman, who's still unidentified to this day, appears to be about 25 years old. Her skull was smashed in, though there's no mention in media reports of her throat being slashed. And it was interesting to note that the killer took his time with her as there were empty beer bottles strewn around the body. Now, April 15, 1911, Georgia Brown was found dead. Since she was shot, not bashed in the head, most people don't believe she was a victim of the Atlanta Ripper. But whether she was or wasn't, it'll never be known because her murder was never solved. Next murder that was probably committed by this same unknown killer took place May 27, 1911. Now there had been a fairly lengthy period of time between murders to this point. Something changed. The murder that took place May 27th seemed to be the beginning of a series of crimes committed by this creature of the shadow. May 27th, Mary Bell Walker was a cook. Walking home from her job on this Saturday night and apparently came face to face with the mysterious ripper. They found her dead the next morning with her throat slashed. June 15th, the next victim was added to the list. And her name was Addie Watts. Found with her skull smashed in with a brick. Body had been drugged into some shrubbery where she was beaten in the head with a train coupling pin. And as a final indignity, her throat was slashed. May 24, excuse me, June 24th, another black woman with the name of Lizzie Watts was murdered. She'd been hit in the head, drug in a snare by bushes, and her throat had been slashed. And though the police maintain they'd begun to suspect a serial killer was at work, it appears it was an enterprising newspaper reporter who actually noticed the pattern. Well, the paper started asking if there was a killer on the loose. The stories of the murder of black women, if they were reported at all, were relegated to the uh, back pages with little detail given. It was assumed the killings were the simple product of uh, the degeneracy to be found in the black community. And certainly initially, no one in their right mind assumed that one person was committing these murders. 
In fact, in response to the suggestion that there was a single killer. So resistant with some authorities to the idea of one killer, it was claimed that this was a convenient and fictional scapegoat for men to use to cover up the murder of their wives or girlfriends. Well, July 1st, another attack took place. But the purported second victim of the night managed to survive and give a brief description of her attacker. On this Saturday night, 20-year-old Emma Lou Sharp was sitting at home waiting for her mother to come back from the grocery store. And finally concerned it was taking her, son, um, her mother so long to return, she began to walk to the grocery to see why her mother was so late. Well, she got to the grocery store and to be told her mother had never been there. No idea what to do or where else to look for her mother, Emma Lou decided to go back home. And all the way out there, she was approached in the street by a tall, broad-shouldered black man wearing a wide-brimmed hat. Beside herself with worry, she wasn't really paying attention when the man spoke to her. Asked her how she was feeling. Yeah, she was baffled by that question, but answered fine and kept on walking. Then suddenly he stepped in front of her and blocked her path. Now concerned for her own safety, she tried to get around the man. And as she brushed past him, she heard him say, uh, Don't be afraid, and never hurt girls like you. And in the next breath, he stabbed her in the back. Well, when she felt the knife enter her back, she screamed at the top of her lungs and took off running as fast as she could. Blood running down her back. Blood running down her back. Duh, can't talk. Luckily, some neighbors heard her screams and came running to her assistance. Well, that wouldn't happen today. Mysterious black man in a wide-brimmed hat stopped chasing her and literally vanished into the shadows from when she had come. Now, her mother wasn't as lucky as Emma Lou was. Neighbors who were searching for Emma Lou's attacker found her mother's body from nearby uh, bushes. She'd been hit in the head and her throat had been slashed. July 10th, workmen on Atlanta Avenue noticed a trail of blood leading into a small gully. Deciding to follow that blood trail, the men found the body of Sadie Holly. Her head had been bashed in with a rock, which was found lying nearby. Her throat had been slashed and her shoes had been cut off her feet. Bloodhounds were brought in to try and track the killer, and they lost a scent after about 200 yards. Well, the crime scene contained all the classic trademarks of the Atlanta Ripper, but the police preferred to rely on a tried-and-true method to solving crimes. Find somebody to arrest. Anybody. It really doesn't matter. Next day, they arrested a man by the name of Henry Huff and charged him with Sadie's murder. A witness, who was unnamed, claimed that he had seen Huff with Sadie on the night of the murder and had been arguing. Additionally, police claimed that Huff had been found with dirt and blood on his clothes. And as a result of this witness's unreported word, Huff was held on suspicion and eventually indicted, though it appeared nobody else, not even the police, really believed he was guilty. But the police could now brag they'd caught the killer in record time, which removed some of the pressure on them from the leaders of the black community. At the same time as police arrested Henry Huff, they also arrested another man witnesses said had been seen with Sadie. His name was Todd Henderson. And there were some sources that claimed that Emma Lou Sharp had identified Henderson as a man had stabbed her in the back, and others said she couldn't be sure. And to put icing on the cake, so to speak, police also arrested and indicted a third suspect. His name was John Daniel. Now, everyone was assured the killings were at an end with all these arrests. Nobody's really confident the Atlanta Ripper had been caught. 
Well, in spite of these assurances, on April 30, on, excuse me, August 31st, there was another murder that revealed the same trademarks as the earlier killings. The victim was 20-year-old Marianne Duncan. Her body was found lying on the railroad tracks on the west side of Atlanta. Her throat had been slashed and her shoes cut off her feet. October 31st, another victim was found. Her name was Emma Florence and her head had been bashed in and her throat slashed. Everything about this murder screamed Ripper. Well, in November, another victim was discovered. Her name was Minnie Wise and she was hit in the head with a rock and her body was found dumped on a trash heap where two previous victims had been found. Her throat was slashed and her right index finger cut off at the joint. Naturally, police immediately suspected her husband, Bud Wise, had killed her and seemed to make it look like a Ripper murder. But this was never proven. At this point, police would have arrested the Easter Bunny to keep from submitting he was a serial killer stalking the black community. And as with many serial killers, there seemed to be a tendency to escalate the horror of the killings. The same was true of the Atlanta Ripper. On November 21st, the still warm body to Mary Putnam was found lying in a ditch, partially covered with loose dirt. Her skull had been crushed, her throat had been slashed. That was enough for it to be viewed as a ripper murder, but in this case, her breast was also slashed open and her heart torn out of her rib cage and left sitting beside the body. Well, with this gruesome act, the ripper was believed to have ended his killings for 1911. During the first few months of 1912, there were five black women murdered in Atlanta. Unfortunately, due to the absence of records, it's impossible to tell how many of these victims were killed by the Ripper. Isn't it interesting that records that would tend to show the incompetency of the Atlanta police all vanished? January 12, 1912, Ida Ferguson was found stabbed to death. Again, in an immediate knee-jerk reaction, police arrested her boyfriend, Lucky Elliott. He was later convicted of the murder. All the evidence against him was circumstantial, but police knew he did it, so he had to be convicted. Otherwise, the police would have looked bad. Sunday, January 20th, the body of Pearl Williams was found. Her throat had been slashed. Police pointed a finger at Frank Harvey, who had told witnesses he wanted to marry her, and if he couldn't have her, nobody else could. Police also arrested a 17-year-old boy by the name of Edgar Evans in regard to this murder, but his involvement was... Never revealed. He was just arrested and accused. No evidence was ever produced. But he made the police look good. February 15th, the body of Alice Owens was found. And while some viewed this as another Ripper killing, the police immediately arrested her husband, Charles Owens, for the murder and his later convicted based on what, by anybody's imagination, was somewhat sketchy circumstantial evidence. April 15th, the body of an unknown 15-year-old girl was found. Her throat had been cut, and she had been thrown into the river. May 11th, an unidentified woman was found who had been hit in the head, drugged in some nearby shrubbery, and had her throat slashed. Well, as far as can be determined, this murder of the unidentified woman on May 11th was the last of the Ripper murders. Some question whether or not all the murders committed over that two-year period where, when the Ripper was said to be the most active were actually committed by one man. The unfortunate thing is that due to the large number of crimes committed in the black community in Atlanta during this time period and the tendency of law enforcement to chalk them up to the degeneracy of the black race, the investigation never seriously addressed the possibility that there was a serial killer attacking black women. 
Now, that is a very sad commentary on the concept of equal justice for all. You know, I've spent many of my formative years only around law enforcement. My college major was criminal justice, so a lot of officers in my various classes. And even the black officers had what you might call the predisposition to discount murders in the black community as just one of those things. Uh, now, logically speaking, uh, since a white face would have stood out very clearly in the black community, odds are the Atlanta Ripper was in fact an individual of the black community. But then again, there's no evidence that says that is the case. And the fact that they were discounted simply because they were killing black females is absolutely uh, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. A murder is a murder. Now, the reason I know that Georgia used to be the personal thief of a group of uh, jurists and uh, attorneys and the wealthy in the state of Georgia. I interacted with that group. It's called the Fish Camp Gang. And uh, they met periodically at what was called the Fish Camp on the backwater. And John H. Land was the man. If he was in your corner, you had the best life you could imagine. He was a friend of my father's. And I had uh, I was practicing law in those days, and I had taken a case uh, regarding a black family. They had uh, he was a uh, insurance agent, very hard charging, aggressive individual. Sold a lot of insurance and owned a lot of property. Well, he contracted cancer, which of course took the wind out of his sails. And uh, he was going to have to file bankruptcy. They were going to do a Chapter 11 reorganization. And he went to a well-known bankruptcy attorney who called in a local contractor who was the best friend of my former stepmother. Well, my late stepmother, I guess I'd better say. And... If you never grew up in the South, you don't really understand what I'm going to say. But the, the black couple and their daughter, who was home from college, and she was one of those, um, she wanted to protest everything. If you said good morning, she'd hold a protest because there was no proof it was a good morning. So the contractor said, you people don't, uh, don't really understand everything that's going on, but tell you what, you turn over all your property to me, I'll pay off all your debts, and you won't have to file bankruptcy, and you can start fresh. Now his property probably was a little over a million dollars. His debts were only a couple hundred thousand. 
But the contractor wanted him to just turn the property over to him. And the daughter had heard about me from some friend of theirs. and So the family came to see me, and I said, well, uh, I'm not going to represent you unless until I talk to the other attorney. So I called him. I thought he was something of a friend. I mean, we weren't close by any reason. And I told him what had been said to me, and I said, uh, he said, well, what's your problem? And I said, well, if what they're saying is true, it's borderline malpractice. You're basically ripping them off. And he just had a fit. And I said, okay, fine. He ordered me not to represent him. Well, I went ahead and represented him, and a week or so later, I was in court in front of Judge Land. And I won the case and had some papers for the judge to sign. And as he signed them, he looked at me and he said, uh, stick around after court, I'll take you to lunch. Which had never happened before. So we went to lunch at, uh, across the street from the courthouse were some uh, antebellum homes. And a couple of them had been turned into very good restaurants. Very expensive restaurants, but very good restaurants. So the um, we went to lunch, and as he ate, he said, uh, you mind if I make some comments on your performance in my courtroom? I said, by all means. He said, you're going to have an excellent career if you can learn one thing. I said, what's that? Learn what color you are. And I said, so what? He said, you have to understand there's a certain pecking order, if you will. And um, you have the good fortune to be part of the, of the upper class of the legal profession, if you will. You're white. And I said, yeah. He said, you have to understand that certain people and he, he used the southern slang for blacks. And he said, uh, how did he put it? He said, blacks, queers, and spicks. And this is his language, not mine. Well, my response to that statement was, I took his money, I gave my word, I'm going to honor it. He said, well, if you do, you're a traitor to your race, and you'll be punished for it. A lot of attorneys' fortunes have been made in this state by taking money from minorities. <coughs> and if you interfere with that, you'll pay a price. And I said, well, you know, I have to do what I have to do. So, they immediately set out to destroy my practice. To the uh, point of even forging my name to a resignation. Because none of those clowns could beat me in court. But they could do it administratively. And the state bar jumped right on the bandwagon. Nobody's going to argue with Judge Land. And they have spent 
hundreds of thousands of dollars in uh, attorney dues punishing people like me who don't uh, get in line and follow the, the rules. Well, from the Atlanta Ripper, I'll turn to a murder that's uh, fairly close to home here. Everybody's heard of Billy the Kid. <coughs> Excuse me. Who was said to have been killed by Pat Garrett. Now, I wrote a book called The Border Escapades of Billy the Kid where I laid out the evidence for the fact that Pat Garrett actually helped Billy escape to start a new life in Silver City. But very few people know what happened to Pat Garrett. Well, his name is well known to any student of the Old West. But very few people know he was murdered not too far from Las Cruces, New Mexico. Now, Pat Garrett at one time or another was a lawman, a bartender, an author, a Texas ranger, even a customs agent. But his claim to fame was for allegedly killing Billy the Kid. At various times, he served as sheriff in Lincoln County, New Mexico, as well as Donna Anna County, New Mexico. And like many other famous people from the Old West, his reported life is a mixture of legend and fact. He was murdered February 29, 1908, under very strange circumstances, and his murder was never solved. Well, there are many stories told about Pat Garrett's life. As I say, he was supposed to have killed Billy the Kid with a shot to the heart in a dark room. When there's evidence, Pat Garrett actually faked Billy's death to uh, help his young friend get a fresh start and earn him that $500 that had been promised to him by Lou Wallace, the territorial governor. Uh, but that's another story. Now, what's not talked about much is that after he chose not to seek re-election as sheriff of Lincoln County in 1882, he moved to Texas. March 10, 1884, Texas Governor John Ireland appointed him a lieutenant in the Texas Rangers. And in spite of the fact he enjoyed his duties, within a year he resigned his commission and he went back to his ranch near Roswell, New Mexico. Now, Garrett apparently wasn't a man who liked to stay in one place for too long. In 1892, he moved his large family to Uvalde, Texas, where he became a close friend of John Nance Garner, a man who would one day be vice president of the U.S. Now, Garrett seemed to be happy in Uvalde, but something happened in New Mexico that drew him back. January 31st, 1896, Colonel Albert Jennings Fountain and his eight-year-old son Henry vanished on the edge of the White Sands area of New Mexico, and the mystery of what happened to the fountains has never been solved. Apache scouts were brought in to try and track the buckboard at Fountain had been driving, but to no avail. Not even Pinkerton detectives were able to determine what happened to the man and his son. In April of 1896, Garrett was appointed to Sheriff of Donna Anna County to solve that mystery. 1898, he had collected sufficient evidence to make arrests and asked for warrants for Oliver M. Lee, William McNew, Bill Carr, and James Gilliland. Now, it was some months before the four were captured and after a trial, they were found not guilty. After Garrett killed his last bad man, man wanted for murder by the name of Norman Newman, President Theodore Roosevelt appointed Garrett to the post of uh, 
collector of customs for in El Paso, Texas. That was in 1901. He was one of three men known as Roosevelt's White House gunfighters. Um, DeMatos, Jack, Garrett, and Roosevelt. Um, what three names you'll see are revolving around that uh, particular title. The other two of the three gunmen or gunfighters were Bill, Bat Masterson and Ben Daniels. They were the actual uh, White House gunfighters, along with Garrett. Um, the other names I mentioned wrote about them. Now, there was a public outcry against his appointment, but Roosevelt was adamant in his determination to appoint Garrett to that position. As a result of Roosevelt's firm support, Garrett's appointment was confirmed by the Senate January 2, 1902. Problems seemed to be that Garrett performed his duties as if he was sheriff, riding roughshod over a lot of folks. May of 1903, he got into a public fistfight with an employee. Each had to pay a $5 fine for disturbing the peace. But the list of his enemies was growing. Steady stream of complaints that Garrett was incompetent were sent to Washington, but Roosevelt was firm in his support of Garrett. And to fur further show his support for the former lawman, Roosevelt even invited Garrett to attend a Rough Rider reunion being held in San Antonio, Texas. The Rough Riders are actually um, recruited in a hotel bar in uh, San Antonio. It's a hotel right across the street from the Alamo. Since Gary had never been a member of this illustrious group, it was taken as a slap in the face to his critics. Now, Garrett attended that event and even brought a guest of his own who he introduced to the president. That guest was Tom Powers, who Garrett introduced as a cattleman from Texas. Garrett, Powers, and Roosevelt were even photographed together and the three sat at the same table for dinner. You know, Garrett's enemies were quick to point out that the cattleman from Texas was actually Tom Powers, the owner of a notorious dive in El Paso called the Coney Island Saloon. Well, for Roosevelt, this affront was the last straw. He replaced Garrett with a new collector January 2nd, 1906. But losing his appointment as custom collector left Garrett in a severe financial strait. His ranch near Roosevelt, uh, excuse me, near Roswell was uh, heavily mortgaged and he was unable to make payments. So the county auctioned off his personal possessions in order to satisfy personal judgments against him. The total from that auction came to... Um, $650. But the important one of George Curry as territorial governor of New Mexico by Roosevelt, Garrett thought he saw a way out of his financial problem. He arranged a meeting with Curry, who was a longtime friend. And Curry promised Garrett as soon as he was inaugurated as territorial governor, he'd appoint Garrett to be superintendent of the territorial prison in Santa Fe. Well, unfortunately for Garrett, Curry's inauguration was several months away, and Garrett needed money now. Well, leaving his family in New Mexico, he went back to El Paso and took a job with the real estate firm H.M. Maple & Company. <coughs> Excuse me. He moved in with a woman known to all as Miss Brown, who was actually an El Paso prostitute. Well, when word reached Governor-elect George Curry of Garrett's living arrangement in El Paso, he immediately withdrew the offer to be superintendent of the territorial prison. 
Left Garrett, that left Garrett with more desperate than ever. According to people in the New Mexican town of Oro Grande, after this setback, Pat Garrett left El Paso and moved to Oro Grande, where he planned to open a store. The building he rented still stands, looked at as something resembling a museum about Garrett. At that same time, Dudley Poe Garrett, Pat's son, had signed a five-year lease for his Bear Canyon ranch with John Wayne Brazil. Brazil had said he planned to run cattle on the ranch, but instead brought in a herd of goats, which would ruin the land for grazing for quite some time after that. Garrett tried to break the lease due to the goat issue, but more importantly, because the money for Brazil's operation had uh, come from his neighbor, W.W. Bill Cox, and Brazil's partner was going to be uh, Archie Prentice, or Print Road, who Garrett despised. One Brazil refused to terminate the lease, no matter what the court. Attempting to play peacemaker, James B. Miller, also known as Killing Jim Miller, uh, met with Garrett trying to work out a solution to the problem. After his meeting with Garrett Miller, then met with Brazil, agreed to break the lease with somebody to buy his goat herd. Well, a relative of Miller's marriage, uh, Carl Adamson, agreed to purchase the, the goat herd for 1,200 go of 1,200 goats. But at the last minute, Brazil claimed he'd miscounted, and there were actually 1,800 goats rather than 1,200. Uh, Adamson refused to buy that many goats, so the deal fell through. But Adamson agreed to meet with Brazil and Garrett to see if they could reach a compromise. According to one story, Garrett and Carl Adamson were riding for, together from Ross Cruces to a meeting. Brazil appeared on horseback along the way, and Garrett was shot and killed, though who did it and why remains a mystery. That being said, according to the story told in Oro Grande, Garrett was actually riding into Las Cruces on a buckboard for the meeting and stopped along the roadside to relieve himself, as he did many times. And it was in the process of relieving himself, somebody stepped from the trees and shot Garrett. His body was left lying beside the road. It was agreed that both Adamson and Brazil returned to Las Cruces, where Brazil was supposed to have told Deputy Sheriff Felipe Lucero he'd kill Garrett. Now, it does stretch the credulity that Garrett just happened to stop at a place where somebody was hiding in the bushes waiting for him. Maintained by those in Oro Grande, Garrett was known to stop at one particular place along the road to relieve himself, so this was actually a premeditated killing. If Brazo was uh, going to make a lot of money selling the goat herd, which was the alleged purpose of the meeting, why would he kill Garrett? And why would a professional assassination such a, excuse me, a professional assassin such as James Miller get involved in a, as a peacemaker in this particular disagreement? Well, Brazel's trial concluded May 4, 1909. Brazel was represented by Albert Bacon Fall, future Secretary of the Interior. The only eyewitness, Carl Adamson, was never called as a witness. As a result, Brazel was acquitted of Garrett's murder. For the time, Albert Bacon Falls was very well connected politically, and he was an expensive attorney, and all of Brazel's money was tied up in the goat herd, so who financed his defense? And why was Adamson not called to testify? Was the fix in, insofar as Garrett's murder trial was concerned? Whatever may have been the case, uh, for a man like Garrett to be murdered while relieving himself on the side of the road was an ignominious end, certainly. With the career he had had to be shot while holding yourself, believing yourself against a tree, is a very sad end. Well, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk about more unfinished business. Until then, this is Ken Hodnell for the Ken Hodnell Show saying have a truly great evening.